Welcome to Making a Difference, a Junction Journalism production. I'm Laura Schofield. And I'm Andrina Candio. This episode of Making a Difference has been produced by journalism students at the University of New South Wales on Badigal Country. In this episode, we bring you stories about people making a difference in sometimes surprising ways. Shana Correa meets an Australian Vietnamese priest with powerful insights in combating racism in Australia. Emily Anderson profiles an organisation offering support to financially disadvantaged pregnant women. Kevin Ding speaks to women in film about why it matters to create more room in front and behind the camera for women. And finally, Imogen Smith speaks with a financial coach who helps people with compulsive over-shopping disorders make better decisions so they don't emerge from lockdown with a financial hangover. And just a heads up to listeners, audio quality in some segments has been impacted by COVID-19 lockdown restrictions. In our first story, Father Henry Tran speaks about how being a refugee has shaped his life. His blunt critique of the many forms of racism in Australia can offer a template for recognising and combating the issue. Victorious communist who forced the city's surrender said the capital of South Vietnam henceforth will be known as Ho Chi Minh City. And then, shortly after midday, came the climax of 30 years of fighting. That was the time when I made the decision. I think that uh, I had no future if I uh, continued to hang around in Vietnam. Father Henry Tran is a Vietnamese refugee who in 1984, as a trainee priest, made the difficult decision to flee his country. He landed in Sydney in 1985, with very little English to begin his new life. You compare the third world with the first world, because Vietnam was very backward in the 80s. When I left Vietnam, the country uh, wasn't open up yet. It's still uh, very restricted Mm -hmm. in a lot of area. So the governments were still very much in control of every part of of life, religious and civil. Father Henry says leaving his family and fleeing Vietnam was a very hard decision and he will always be empathetic to the plight of other refugees. As a refugee, I think I always have a sub-spot because I've been there, done that, so I know how hard it is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter what people said about refugees, uh, good or, or, or not too good. And I know it is hard to make the decision to leave your own country, your birthplace, to go to another place because uh, you have to sacrifice a lot. You know, it is like a cultural loss. It is a um, linguistic uh, loss. There has to be very uh, ser- uh, serious reason for people to make that decision. And I knew that, you know, I have to choose between life and death because I, I didn't have a, a, a life as I expected with education, with the freedom to practice uh, my faith, my religion, and I didn't have security. So that's why I chose um, to enter into death. 
the risk was beyond my imagination. I didn't think that was that risky, that dangerous, that deadly. Because uh, I, I was told that you know it was a hard journey, but but it was a makeable journey. So that's why you know I I gamble with my my life. But I realized that you know, maybe half of the people in my country did not have that opportunity. Yeah. Father Henry completed seminary training in Sydney in 1994, and has worked as a parish priest for more than 25 years. He values Australia's diverse, multicultural society, but acknowledges racism is a looming shadow in the everyday lives of many refugees, himself included. There's different levels of racism. Maybe I experience it from my perspective. And from my interpretation, I think if you are receptive enough, and and you you can read between uh, the line, and you knew that they they meant something by the way they look at you, and you you don't need them to tell you that you know go back to Vietnam, and you you know the way they look at you, and you know what it what they mean to you, uh, yeah. So you know racism spoken, and unspoken. But you have to fight. Father Henry has spent the past sixteen years at the Our Lady of Lords Parish in Sydney Seven Hills. He plans to spend his retirement translating materials on the Vatican II Council from English to Vietnamese to give back to his beloved mother country, Vietnam. He is careful in his advice for would-be refugees. I gamble with my my life. Fourteen, I I won. If you're brave enough to make decision, I leave it to whoever it is to make his or her decision. That was Shana Correa reporting. Researchers say one in six Australian women has undergone an abortion by their mid-thirties. For many, that choice is situational. They can't afford a baby, or it's not a safe space to bring a baby into. Ashley Stevenson made that choice. Three times. Now she has set up an NGO called Hope House to give other women the options she never had. Emily Anderson reports. It's a very difficult situation for these women, and they might just think, "Oh, it's easier just to get rid of this baby than to keep going." The reason I started Hope House is not to stop women having abortions, not to try and tell them that it's wrong, but to let them know the whole truth and then let them make a fully informed decision. Hello, my name is Emily Anderson. According to a study by La Trobe University, about one in six Australian women will have had an abortion by their mid-thirties, with the most common reason cited that they were not situationally and mentally ready to have a baby. However, they did not have easy access to the support required. The La Trobe study identified women with lower levels of control over their reproductive health, whether through family violence drug use or ineffective contraception, were most likely to have an abortion. In this podcast, we meet three women who have experienced this gap the hard way. Ashley Stevenson is the founder of Hope House, a small not-for-profit organisation in Western Sydney, 
Having had abortions herself, Ashley's mission is to help women receive the support and information that she lacked. I was brought up in a a poor family, a post-World War II family, not a happy family. And as a, a very young teenager, I decided to go looking for love elsewhere and searching in the wrong places, getting pregnant by the age of 15. I had fallen pregnant during the incubation period for the rubella vaccination and I was told by the doctors that my baby would be born horribly deformed. So my mother and the doctor decided together the baby had to die against my wishes. But because I was under 16, uh, there was no rights on my side in those days. Back in 1971, it would have been. I became a drug addict shortly after that, up to the point of heroin use. Terrible life. These challenges continued, and she would go on to have two more abortions. I longed for happiness and stability and for the bad things to stop happening, to find some of the good things I knew that were out there. Ashley became passionate about helping women who lack the support to carry out their pregnancy, seeking to provide them with the care of which she had been deprived. In 2019, she founded Hope House with former midwife Nadia Risco. Back when I had my three abortions, there was no information whatsoever. Nobody ever spoke to me about the possible long-term ramifications, that there might be guilt, that there might be sadness, there might be loss. The reason I started Hope House is because I wanted to be able to tell women and men, their partners, their families, the whole truth so they could make a fully informed decision not to stop women having abortions, not to try and tell them that it's wrong, but to let them know the whole truth and then let them make a fully informed decision. Whatever the women that come to us decide, we will support them. If they abort, they can come back to us. If they keep the children, they can come back to us and we will support them in any way they need. That doesn't occur very often out in our culture even today. Since its opening, Hope House has helped almost 10 different women in difficult situations, ex-inmates, homeless women, asylum seekers and those in domestic abuse situations. One of these women is Tegan, a former inmate and now mother of six-month-old Bobby. I was heavily using drugs when I found out I was pregnant, so I had to stop detox. I was also scared because I had no idea what I was doing. Like I was couch surfing, I really didn't have anywhere to go. Mm-hmm. I was staying with friends for a month or two at a time. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it was just pretty stressful. So I didn't have anywhere to go. I ended up in a refuge. And um, I got a house through that. With the help of Hope House, who she had been referred to after drug rehabilitation, she was able to find government housing. However, housing was not the only issue she faced. She had no means to attend her antenatal appointments required in order to help her keep her baby under family services. Um, all my antenatal appointments, like oh, every single one that I had, they took me to. Yeah, I couldn't have gotten to them otherwise. Mm. When I got my house, they 
kept pretty much helped me get all the furniture for my house. Any anything that I needed, I know I could call them and they did their best to help me. Instrumental to supporting Tegan at Hope House is former nurse and midwife Nadia Risco, who believes there are shortcomings in systems and funding when it comes to disadvantaged pregnant women. There's very limited help in Australia for those women at risk who are pregnant in an unplanned pregnancy. There is a gap and I think more pregnancy help centres are needed to step in and, and help these women. The main problem for a lot of these women is financial. They don't have money. They're they're all on Centrelink payments and that's not enough for them. So if you don't have money, you you, you can't pay for transport, can you? And they might just think, oh, it's easier just to get rid of this baby than to keep going. And for women that are a part of family services, proper support during pregnancy can be the make or break as to whether they are allowed to keep their baby. If they don't come to the antenatal appointments, then that's a red flag that they're not going to the medical appointments and the baby is even at more risk of being taken away from them. We are there for women who have nobody. We step in and we lift them up and uphold them and encourage them and comfort them until they are strong enough to stand on their own feet and run. (laughs) That was Emily Anderson reporting. The Twitter challenge, hashtag 52 films by women, has sparked conversations about how far women in film have really come. Reporter Kevin Ding took the challenge and now speaks to women in film to provoke change and why it matters to create more room for women in front of and behind the camera. Today we're talking women in film, specifically women behind the camera. The only challenge is where to find them. A year ago, self-described feminist film critic Joe Bradley introduced me to the 52 Films by Women Challenge. Joe, could you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, I found it through Twitter and its basic concept is that you watch one movie directed by a woman every week for 52 weeks. I feel like if you ask someone to name a female-directed movie, everyone can. You know, they'll live Clueless and Wonder Woman and Lady Bird and Lost in Translation. Everyone's seen the popular movies directed by women, but if you actually try and force yourself to watch one a week for 52 weeks, you run out after you've seen all the popular ones and it's actually quite hard to find them on streaming services. How did you avoid just ticking off the well-known movies? For me, it was all about discovering filmmakers and new movies. So I asked a question on Twitter. I said, what's your favorite movie directed by women? And then a bunch of people replied. And I have about a list of 300 films, right? And then I'll go down the list. And I'll be like, okay, this is some Agnes Varda film that everyone's talking about. And then I'd type it into every streaming service, but it wouldn't be anywhere. So many of these indie movies aren't on any of the streaming services. Were there any movies you liked that you think you wouldn't have watched if you weren't actively doing the challenge? That's a good question. Because I think there are some movies that I probably would have watched anyway. But then some movies that I specifically discovered because I was looking for it. Desiree Akaban, she directed The Miseducation of Cameron Post, which is like a queer coming-of-age movie about conversion camps. Uh, Taya Risha Poe's Cellar and the Spades, that's another fantastic movie. Andrea Arnold's American Honey is one I'd heard about a lot, but it's like three hours long, this three-hour indie feature, and I probably would not have watched it if it wasn't for me trying to do this challenge. I watched Baby Teeth because... 
of the challenge. From what I knew about it beforehand, it didn't seem up my alley. But then I was like, oh, it's an Australian film made in Sydney. Yeah, this is a boy. According to the latest study, Celluloid Ceiling, by the Centre for Study of Women in Television Film, women made up 16% of directors of the 100 highest grossing films in the United States in 2020. This was the second consecutive year where this percentage increased. It also goes into a lot of other aspects about female-directed movies. Did anything stand out to you in particular? Well, I think that study, it really emphasised if you've got a female writer or a female director, you're much more likely to have a female protagonist and you're much more likely for women to have speaking parts and you're much more likely to have other female crew members. For UNSW's Dr Jodie Brooks, who specialises in feminism and film, the 52 Women Project will help audiences see the resonance and connections between films made by women through the history of cinema. One of the things that's been a consistent interest to me is how do we actually teach film studies, how we teach film history, so that we can actually look at the diverse voices of women in filmmaking, not just now, but over the history of cinema. Do you think with the advent of social media and hashtag movements like 52 Films by Women, now there actually can be a greater appreciation of women's roles throughout cinema history? I don't know if social media in particular is is a key driver. I think access to material is incredibly important. And alongside the 52 Women Project, I would say one of the most significant things is the Women Film Pioneers Project. All of these researchers come in from all over the place and contribute research and archival research into the history of women working in filmmaking. That kind of project enables all of us to be conscious of the ways that women have been written out of the history of filmmaking. There's a couple of things I think that the the 52 Women Project does. One thing that that does is function as a form of programming. And so it very much complements streaming services that we have now. And in fact, when I first saw what you were doing, I was thinking, well, it's sort of interesting, isn't it? Netflix will have their category. Once they've, you know, done their algorithms on you, they'll have that thing you know, that comes up that goes films by women. Are there any films by women that you would particularly recommend to listeners? Where, where to start? Like when I watched Nomadland and I did go see it at cinema, watching Nomadland made me want to go back and watch Andrea Arnold's wonderful film American Honey. Nomadland and that one had a very nice resonance for me and I also wanted to go back and watch some of Lynn Ramsey's work. One of the things that I think the 52 Women Project will do will enable audiences to see some of the resonances and connections between different films made by women because while some people doing the hashtag 52 women project are building up their knowledge of women's filmmaking most women who are making films are very conscious of the history of women's filmmaking they can reference that in their works in a whole bunch of ways and so the people that often have the richest knowledge of film history of course and film culture are the ones that are often most marginalized from it because you're because you need to do all of those different layers. You need to be able to track all the way through yourself. The more you view, the more you, the more you realise where you want to travel and what you want to see. From a simple film lover's perspective, media students Richard Austin and Ariana Kalidi have their own theories on why it's taken so long for female-directed films to finally receive global recognition and attention. I do think that there actually are less films made by women than there are by men. A lot of filmmakers female filmmakers who have done maybe one or two films, and then that's it. Historically, Hollywood has never been a female-dominated um, 
industry. It's always been um, something that's been led and directed and kind of created by men. And you can even see that in, in the most recent kind of movies, female leads, when a female is casted as a lead, it's still a big topic of conversation. There's the lack of opportunities that leads into, you know, a smaller chance of a female directed film going into cinema. What do you expect or hope for the future of the industry in terms of women in film? In terms of how this will continue on in the film world, look back to the 60s and 70s um, in the new Hollywood movement. There was this bunch of um, um, new filmmakers coming out, um, mostly men, yes. They were making great films. They started, they, they got their foot in the door making one good film, and then they just kept making great, great films. And I think that's basically what's going to start happening now. There's going to be a new movement of female filmmakers now who'll, who've got their foot in the door. They're making some good movies. And then I think as they develop, they'll grow, become better filmmakers, then make their masterpieces, I think. What I would hope for, obviously, for females and women to continue making these amazing movies, but also for the conversation to be focused on the art itself, to, you know, explore different experiences that aren't necessarily about women um, and for female directors to be recognised for their uh, ability to tell stories. That was Kevin Ding reporting. For many of us, the therapy of choice during COVID has been of the retail variety. Under lockdown, it's easy to slide into a treat-yourself mood to survive the isolation. We deserve it, and with the buy-now-pay-later schemes, it's never been easier. Overshopping therapist Carrie Rattle has practical solutions for those of us with this treat-yourself addiction. Imogen Smith reports. 50% of my compulsive shoppers are in serious debt, anywhere from $100,000 to $4 million. How often do you treat yourself? A little self-spending seems needed after a long day or week of working hard. But what happens when this mentality evolves into a compulsive disorder? I took to the streets to find out a bit more about our need to treat. I'm a little bit of an impulse shopper, so I tend to treat myself quite often. Once a week? Once a week? Yeah. Once a month? Once a month? Pretty often. Yeah. How often would you say? Once a week? Yeah, once a week. Yeah. Once a week? Was there anything that you didn't really need that you bought? An, an Nintendo Switch. I haven't touched in about six months. I bought earphones. That was an impulse. Like, they were expensive. Coloured shirts. Coloured shirts. Yeah. Clothes, like, yeah. And clothes, I'm like, I don't even really like that much, to be honest. Oh my god, this is so bad. But, like, I bought a $200 mic for no reason. That last person you heard was Hannah Pearson. Last year during lockdown, the need to treat got a bit intense. Right at the start of COVID, I was really frugal. I didn't spend any money at all. And then it sort of got to a point where like, I thought quarantine would be over by now, but it wasn't. And then I started to treat myself probably about three times a month. So I'd be spending like hundreds of dollars on clothes, but they were all like on sale. So in my mind, mentally, I was thinking, oh, they're all cheap, so it's okay. But I'm spending like $300 on clothes. Carrie Rattle is a financial coach and the CEO of Stopping Over Shopping based in New York. She helps people with shopping addictions and she says the retail sector is a bit like a bad romantic relationship. Imagine going out with a date who says, you're not good enough, right? And then they call you every day, as in retail emails, 
And then when you leave them, they stalk you, ads on all the sites that you go to. How long would you hang around with somebody like that? And yet we do it in retail, but you'd never do it with some somebody you just dated. Rattle says that our desire to treat ourselves stems from a place of entitlement. I'm working so hard, I deserve a treat, but it turns into a hamster wheel, right? So I'm working really hard. I deserve a treat. Oh my gosh, I'm in debt. I have to work harder and I deserve another treat. And oh, I'm in more debt. And it goes like this. So what happens when this mentality goes from being an occasional thing to a regular thing? Oneomania is the official title for shopping addiction or compulsive shopping disorder. And it's a lot more common than you may think. A US study found that 6% of people in North America are compulsive shoppers. That's around 20 million people out of a population of 329 million. What happens is that people feel an emotion they just can't bear. And so for them, what is it that they can use to escape from emotion and emotion that they're completely uncomfortable with? When you think about it, okay, what makes you happier than the way you're feeling right now? There's a project not going well. I need control. What I can control is going out and buying something that I like. So there's a huge breadth of emotion that may drive someone to become an over shopper and eventually a compulsive shopper. And Australia, we aren't completely innocent either. You know those buy now, pay later schemes like Afterpay and ZipPay that make it so easy to spend money that you don't actually have? The simplicity and immediacy of these schemes makes it way too easy to fall into large amounts of debt. Rattle says that the sense of control treating yourself brings can also be traced back to depression and anxiety. When you're already feeling low or already feeling anxious and you know something that gives you instant gratification is going to help, then that's how you get into the, I need to treat myself. But it doesn't come usually, like sometimes it'll come from a positive place, like woohoo, I just got the highest grade in the class. I want to go treat myself. Um, But often it comes from a, a place of darkness, a need, a psychological need to cope with the anxiety they can't bear, the depression they're trying to climb out of. If you are a major self-splurger or feel yourself relying on retail to cope with the stresses of life, Rattle has some strategies to slow down those overshopping behaviours. You want to put a pause between the impulse and the action. You're bored or you're upset and so you immediately pick up your phone. So the first thing you want to do is as soon as you see yourself doing that, pause, put your phone down, go do something else understand that this feeling inside is an emotion and what you want to do is identify the emotion what did you just walk away from is it lack of control boredom feeling less than and then find something else to fill it for example do things instead like volunteer work because you're going to receive esteem in a whole different way or give to communities in other ways and that story by imogen smith finishes our program For more of the best stories in student journalism around Australia, go to our website, junctionjournalism.com. And don't forget, there's a new episode of Making a Difference every month. You can subscribe on your favourite podcast app. I'm Laura Schofield. 
Thanks for listening.